This series, If Jesus is Lord, Loving Our Enemies and Turning the Other Cheek, it's interestingly one of the most difficult topics to preach. It's, it's difficult because it addresses me just as much as it does you. And it's, it's also challenging because for some reason, it seems to be difficult for many to wrap their minds around. So I actually get the most pushback whenever I teach on this subject. Often, the response that I get is that it's actually impossible to live that way, that Jesus couldn't possibly want us to live a nonviolent life. Now, I get it. I know it's hard to hear a preacher talk about loving people that we find to be not very lovable. I know it's hard to hear that Jesus calls us to, to react differently toward those who've wronged us. I know it's difficult to, to fight against our natural human instinct to fight back when we feel threatened or wrong. But the reality is, as I've been trying to show you, it's actually one of the most dominant subjects that Jesus teaches. One of the most ignored by the very church that Jesus founded, but nevertheless, he actually focuses on this subject a lot. And I think there's a reason for that. Actually, I think everything Jesus taught and lived should be of utmost importance to all Christians. After all, as I've shown you, Scripture is very clear that followers of Jesus are to take on the likeness of Jesus. So much so that he calls us to take up our own individual crosses in order to follow him. He, he says simple things like, if you love me, you will follow my commands. So it's in our best interest to be serious about knowing who Jesus is and what he asks of us. Yet, many of us struggle with some of the things that he asks us to do. It's kind of the human dilemma, right? We're all called to be radically transformed into the likeness of Jesus. We're given the presence of the Spirit in our lives to help us with that. But instead, we would rather focus on what Jesus can do for us rather than how do we actually go about living our lives for him and to represent him here on earth. So I get it. It's hard. It's, it's hard in our own power to forgive someone who has wronged us. It's hard in our own power to think of a third option for life that's not saturated in vengeance and violence. It is, after all, everywhere we look in the world around us. But let me ask you something. Has harboring bitterness and resentment gotten you far? Has retribution ever truly solved the way you feel? Does lashing out in anger ever truly empower you to get the results that you're looking for? You see, most psychologists would agree that all of these things actually solve nothing in a person's life. If anything, they create more torment and problems in our lives. This is exactly why Jesus teaches nonviolence. Because violence never leads us into true freedom. Jesus died violently on the Roman cross so that we could be free. Free from the law that couldn't accomplish what God intended. You're not free when you burn inside with anger. You're not free when you hold on to resentment and bitterness. You're only free when these things are gone in your life and Jesus becomes the center of who you are. And that's why Jesus teaches us to live nonviolent, enemy-loving lives 
that reflect the likeness of Christ. So today, I want to continue to look at what Jesus teaches us about the call of nonviolence. Last week, we, we looked at what Jesus taught in his famous Sermon on the Mount. And many believe that it's the only place uh, in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus actually addresses violence. But that's not actually true. His teachings and examples of it are saturated all throughout the Gospel message and the New Testament itself. They're actually central to his teaching. So let's dig into some more examples today. In Luke's Gospel, we have an account of Jesus returning to his hometown, Nazareth. When he gets there, he goes to the local synagogue and he does something very, very fascinating. So let's just open our Bibles to Luke chapter 4. And Luke chapter 4, verse 16, we're in that context where Jesus has returned to Nazareth. And starting at verse 16 of chapter 4, it says, When he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up and read the scriptures. The scroll of Isaiah, the prophet, was handed to him, and so he unrolled the scroll and found the place where this was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. He rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. All eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. Then he began to speak to them. The scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. You see, Jesus opened the scroll and read a text from the book of Isaiah. He read from Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. But did you notice what he didn't do? It's interesting. He, he didn't quote the entire two verses. He didn't read the last part of verse 2. So let's take a look at why this is so fascinating. If we jump over to Isaiah chapter 61... In Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 to 2, this is the verses that he's quoting. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted and to proclaim that captives will be released and prisoners will be freed. He has sent me to tell those who mourn that the time of the Lord's favor has come, and with it the day of God's anger against their enemies. You see, it's interesting, it's fascinating because Jesus omits the word and with it the day of God's anger against their enemies. Or some versions say the day of vengeance of our God. Now, as I've taught you over the past few weeks, this text in Isaiah is a common Jewish text describing the Messianic era. So Jesus reads it, but leaves out the most popular part. He leaves out the violence. Instead, he declares that, he just, that what he just read is open to anyone, even the enemies of the Jews. 
This gets reinforced when he responds to their question in verse 22. He says, isn't this jo-? they say, isn't this Joseph's son? And he replies by saying that a prophet is not accepted in his hometown. And then, and, and this is the best part, he refers to two prominent Old Testament prophets who ministered to and also healed people who were actually Israel's national enemies. And so if we look again uh, where the story continues in Luke chapter 4, jumping to verse 25, listen to what Jesus teaches. He says, certainly there were many needy widows in Israel and and in Elijah's time when the heavens were closed for three and a half years and a severe famine devastated the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them. He was not sent to the Israelites. He was sent instead to a foreigner, a widow of Zerpatha in the land of Sidon. And many in Israel had leprosy in the time of the prophet Elisha. So he's first talking about Elijah, now he's talking about Elisha. But he says, out of all those lepers, the only one who was healed was Naaman, a Syrian. Now, this again is really fascinating. Elijah and Elisha were both sent for the sake of their enemies, not for the sake of Israel. And this is what Jesus teaches. It's crazy because he's he's not just saying that they should love their enemies, now he's actually telling them that they will be included, that their enemies will be included in his new messianic kingdom. Now, if you read the rest, you'll see the people's reaction. They actually get pretty angry with Jesus, so much so that in verse 28 and 29, it tells us that they try to throw Jesus off a cliff at the edge of town. And that's exactly what what still actually, I think, happens today. When people say and teach these same things, people get angry or say that it's not what the Bible says. And it's fascinating to me because we still insist on doing exactly what has never worked in our world. And this is just scratching the surface. Let's take a look at another fascinating relationship that Jesus fosters in the New Testament Gospels. Jesus' attitude toward and his interactions with the Samaritans. You see, for us, they provide another striking example of Jesus showing us how to love our enemies. In Jesus' time, Jews and Samaritans hated each other. I mean, they really hated each other. The Samaritans were a mixed racial group. They were descendants of Jews who had intermarried with Gentiles. To the common Jew, the Samaritans were seen as a disgrace to the Jewish nation. They were introduced into the area of Jerusalem by a foreign conqueror, so that made things worse. And by the 4th century BC, the Samaritans had actually built their own temple on Mount Gerzim as a rival temple to the temple in Jerusalem. They were practicing Jews, just like the Jewish people of their time, but they actually claimed that the temple on Mount Gerzim, not Jerusalem, was where God was to be worshipped. Now, of course, this caused a lot of friction. Here was these half-Jews and half-Gentile people worshipping the Jewish God in their own temple. Of course, this caused a lot of war and bloodshed. And by 129 BC, the Hasmonean Jewish rulers destroyed the Samaritan temple. 
The Samaritans never got over this. And around 6 to 7 AD, one night during the sacred Jewish Passover feast, some Samaritans dumped human bones in the porches and all throughout the Jerusalem temple, and they scattered them all around the sanctuary. Of course, this made the Jews angry and led to many bloody encounters between the Jews and the Samaritans. It was so bad that if a Jew traveled through Samaria on their way to Jerusalem for festivals, there would, they would often have hostile responses to the Jews. We see this hostility in the Gospels where Jesus is actually refused lodging because he's on his way to Jerusalem. That's Luke chapter 9, verse 52 to 53. And in John chapter 4, verse 9, Jesus is refused a drink by, this, by a Samaritan woman. And some of the Jews accuse Jesus of being a Samaritan who's demon-possessed in John chapter 8, verse 48. There was intense hatred between these people. They were the definition of enemies. Now, here is what is fascinating. When you read the gospel narrative closely, you'll catch it. Jesus interacts with the Samaritans, the one the Jews hate, in peaceful, loving ways. He praises the faith of a Samaritan after healing ten lepers. Only the Samaritan comes back to say thank you. That's Luke chapter 17, verses 18 to 19. He rejects his disciples' desire to call down the fires from heaven on a Samaritan who insults Jesus and rejects him by denying him a place to stay. We see that in Luke chapter 9, verses 51 to 56. He even accepts a Samaritan woman as one of his earliest evangelists after he reveals to her that he is the Messiah. He even accepts her invitation to stay a few days in the Samaritan village where she's from. We find that in John 4, 21 to 42. Now, even crazier, he makes a Samaritan the hero of one of his most famous parables. You know, the one about the priest, the Jew, and the Samaritan? He even gives the Jews, gets the Jews to question, uh, that, he, that are questioning him to admit that the Samaritan in the parable is the one who's loving their neighbor the way Scripture calls us to in Luke chapter 10, verse 25 to 37. Every Jewish listener would have understood that Jesus was making a hero out of their nation's enemy. It is love for one's enemy that is actually the central point of this very parable. In Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 to 13, we're told a story about a centurion who begs Jesus to heal his sick servant. This is a centurion, a man who is in charge of, of over a hundred Roman soldiers. He represents the hated Roman imperialists who control the land of the Jews. He is literally a visible symbol of the foreign conquerors whom the violent Jewish revolutionaries want the Messiah to overthrow. Instead, Jesus offers to come to his house to heal his servant. Then when the centurion humbly responds that he's not worthy for Jesus to visit his home, instead he asks Jesus to just speak a word of healing, Jesus is amazed by his faith. He literally says this in, in verse 10. He says, Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Now that is crazy. 
But it, but it gets even better. The very next sentence, Jesus makes a statement that rocks everyone listening. He says, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and, I will, t- and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Now, now this is huge. It's huge for us and and for the people that are listening at the time. The story not only shows Jesus associating with and healing the servant of the the Jews' biggest enemy, it also clearly implies that Jesus' dawning kingdom welcomes these same enemies as actual members of the kingdom. Now, Now, think about this. Not only does he call us to love our enemies, to forgive them and to bless them, he also says that we need to welcome them in. Welcome them into the new messianic kingdom that was supposed to be exclusively for the Jewish people. Now, this is fascinating and it's super important for each of us because most of us, unless you are a Jew, had, had Jesus come as what the Jews expected, then he would not have welcomed us in. There'd be no salvation for us. So it's actually Jesus' nonviolent, enemy-loving posture and teaching that opens the door for you and I to enter into a relationship with the Creator of the heavens and earth. We see this all over the New Testament. Even when Jesus teaches his disciples how to deal with conflict in the church, In Matthew chapter 18, he gives instructions on how to deal with sin in the church. He says, first, go to to the person and seek restoration. Second, if the first step fails, have two or three others go join the conversation. And if that fails, we'll take it to the entire church. Now, this is radically different than the law of Moses that would call at times for sinners to be stoned to death. Notice Jesus never mentions the option of violence. He just saturates us in community and in love. Then there's when Jesus is being nailed to the cross and he cries out, asking the Father to forgive them in Matthew 23, 34. This is wild. The very people nailing him to the cross and Jesus asks God to forgive them. Okay, so let's just look at a few more because I'm kind of running out of time here. I could go on all day with this. That's how much there is in the Gospels about this subject. But let's look at Matthew 26, 52, where Jesus is in the garden praying. Judas shows up with a bunch of armed men and Peter lashes out when one of the armed men tries to take Jesus and he grabs his sword and cuts the man's ear off. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 52. He says, put your sword away. Those who use the sword will die by the sword. Even in a moment where Jesus is being wrongly taken away, he still doesn't want his disciples to use violence. He lives by what he preached in the Sermon on the Mount, do not resist an evil doer. Jesus blatantly rejects violence every opportunity he gets. And he he teaches this to his disciples so much so that instead of violence, Jesus chose the cross and he repeatedly teaches his disciples to take up their own cross. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 38, it says, Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. 
In Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, he says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. In Mark chapter 10, verse 39, he warns his disciples that they will have to drink the cup and be baptized with the baptism that Jesus himself will experience, the suffering. Jesus' actions and teachings reject the use of violence, and it's obvious that he seems to expect his disciples to do the same. Jesus calls us as followers of the way to love our enemies, to forgive them, to reconcile with them, and to invite them in. To never use violence. Instead, choose the way of the cross by loving others to the point of giving up our lives for them. He calls us to live sacrificially, to not seek vengeance and to forgive those who have forsaken us. This is the radical transformation that the gospel calls those who believe to live. It's radically different than just living a good ethical life, attending church and going through the motions of religion. No, Jesus calls us to resist evil by loving the unlovable. It's the only way that we can be different in a world that is saturated with violence. And Jesus definitely calls his church to be different. Now, two weeks from now, we're going to look at the rest of the New Testament and actually how Jesus' disciples lived this radical call of loving their enemies in a world full of violence. Next week, we're going to practice through song and prayer what we have been preaching with a prayer service. But now I'm going to turn things over to Pastor Tamil as she walks us through practicing what we preach.